Revelations 3, verses 14 through 21. This sermon is again written by Charles Spurgeon. It was first preached on July 26th, 1874. Uh, it is titled, An Earnest Warning Against Lukewarmness. Um, the text is Revelation 3, verse 14 to 21. Uh, and I have edited this sermon uh, significantly for brevity and for clarity. The original message intent is still there. We will hear on the state into which churches are very declined, or are very inclined to fall, and we will hear four remedies um, to deal with lukewarmness in the church. So here we begin in Revelation 3, verse 14. Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. But so then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. No scripture ever wears out. The epistle to the church of Laodicea is not an old letter which may be put into the wastebasket and be forgotten. Upon its page still glow the words, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This scripture was not meant to instruct the Laodiceans only. It has a wider aim. The actual church of Laodicea has passed away, but other Laodiceas still exist. Indeed, they are sadly multiplied in our day, and it has ever been the tendency of human nature, however inflamed with the love of God, gradually to chill into lukewarmness. The letter to the Laodiceans is above all others, the epistle for the present times. I should judge that the church at Laodicea was once in a very fervent and healthy condition. Paul mentions the church at Laodicea in his letter to the church at Colossae. He was, therefore, well acquainted with it. And as he does not utter a word of censure with regard to it, we may infer that the church was at that time in a sound state. In time, it degenerated. And cooling down from its former enthusiasm, it became careless, lax, and indifferent. Perhaps its best men were dead. Perhaps its wealth seduced it into worldliness. 
Possibly, its freedom from persecution allowed carnal ease, or neglect of prayer made it gradually backslide. But in any case, it declined till it was neither cold nor hot. Lest we should ever get into such a state, and lest we should be in that state now, I pray that my discourse may come with power to the hearts of all present, but especially to the consciences of the members of my own church. May God grant that it may tend to the arousing of us all. Here now, regarding the state into which churches are very inclined to fall. A church may fall into a condition far other than that for which it has a reputation. It may be famous for zeal and yet be lethargic. The address of our Lord begins, I know thy works. As much as to say, nobody else knows you. Men think better of you than you deserve. You do not know yourselves. You think your works are excellent, but I know them to be very different. Jesus views all the works of his church with searching eyes. The public can only read reports, but Jesus sees for himself. He knows what is done, how it is done, and why it is done. He judges, a, he judges a church not merely by her external activities, but by her internal pieties. He searches the heart. He is not deceived by glitter. He tests all things and values only that gold which will endure the fire. Our opinion of ourselves and Christ's opinion of us may be very different. And it is a very sad thing when it is so. It will be depressing indeed if we stand out as a church notable for earnestness and distinguished for success and yet are not really fervent in spirit or eager in soul winning. A lack of vital energy where there seems to be strength put forth. A lack of real love to Jesus where apparently there is the greatest devotion to him. These are sad signs of fearful degeneracy. Churches are very prone to put the best goods on display in the window, very apt to make a fair show in the flesh. And like men of the world, they try to make a fine figure upon a very slender base. Great reputations often have but slender foundations, and lovers of the truth lament that it should be so. Not only is this true of churches, but of every one of us as individuals, that often our reputation remains when really we have little to offer. I speak as unto wise men. Judge ye how far this may apply to us. The condition described in our text is also one of mournful indifference and carelessness. They were not cold, but they were not hot. They were not infidels, yet they were not earnest believers. They did not oppose the gospel, neither did they defend it. They were not working mischief, neither were they doing any great good. 
They were not disreputable in moral character, but they were not distinguished for holiness. They were not irreligious, but they were not enthusiastic in piety, nor eminent for zeal. They were what the world calls moderates. They were of the broad church. They were neither bigots nor Puritans. They were prudent and avoided fanaticism, respectable and averse to excitement. Good things were maintained among them, but they did not make too much of them. They had prayer meetings, but there were few present, for they liked quiet evenings at home. When more attended the meetings, they were still very dull, for they did their praying very deliberately and were afraid of being too excited. They were content to have all things done decently and in order, but vigor and zeal they considered to be vulgar. Such churches have schools, Bible classes, preaching rooms, and all sorts of initiatives, but they might as well be without them, for no energy is displayed and no good comes of them. They have deacons and elders who are excellent pillars of the church, if the chief quality of pillars is to stand still and exhibit no motion or emotion. They have ministers who may be the angels of the churches, but if so, they have their wings closely clipped, for they do not fly very far in preaching the everlasting gospel, and they certainly are not flames of fire. They may be shining lights of eloquence, but they certainly are not burning lights of grace, setting men's hearts on fire. In such communities, everything is done in a half-hearted, listless, dead-and-alive way, as if it did not matter much whether it was done or not. It makes one's flesh creep to see how sluggishly they move. I long for a whip to lay about their shoulders to make them move. Things are respectably done. The rich families are not offended. The skeptical party is appeased. And the good people are not quite alienated. Things are made pleasant all around. The right things are done. But as to doing them with all your might and soul and strength, a Laodicean church has no idea of what that means. They're not so cold as to abandon their work or to give up their prayer meetings or to reject the gospel. If they did, then they could be convinced of their error and brought to repentance. But on the other hand, they are neither hot for the truth, nor hot for conversions, nor hot for holiness. They are not fiery enough to burn the stubble of sin, nor zealous enough to make Satan angry, nor fervent enough to make a living sacrifice of themselves upon the altar of their God. They are neither cold nor hot. This is a horrible state, because, because it is one which in a church wearing a good repute renders that reputation a lie. When other churches are saying, see how they prosper, see what they do for God, Jesus sees that the church is doing his work in a half-hearted way, keeping up appearances, and he considers justly that it is deceiving its friends. If the world recognizes such a people as being very distinctly an old-fashioned puritanic church, and yet there is unholy living among them and careless walking and a deficiency of real piety, prayer, liberality, and zeal, then the world itself is being deceived. 
and that too in the worst way, because it is led to judge falsely concerning Christianity. For it lays all these faults on the back of religion and cries out, it's all a farce. It's all for show. Christians are all hypocrites. I fear there are churches of this sort. God grant we may not be numbered with them. In this state of the church, there is much self-glorification. For Laodicea said, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. The church members say, everything's going well. What more do we want? All is right with us. This makes such a condition very hopeless because reproofs and rebukes go unheeded where the party rebuked can reply, we don't deserve your critiques. Such warnings aren't meant for us. If you stand up in the pulpit and talk to sleepy churches as I frequently do and speak very plainly, they often have the honesty to say there's a good deal of truth in what that man says. But if I speak to another church which really is half asleep but thinks himself to be quite a model of diligence, then the rebuke glides down like oil off a slab of marble. No result comes from it. Men are less likely to repent when they are in the, when they are in the middle between hot and cold than if they were in the worst extremes of sin. If they were like Saul of Tarsus, enemies of God, they might be converted. But if like Gamaliel, they are neither opposed nor favoring, they will probably remain as they are till they die. The gospel converts a sincerely superstitious Luther, but Erasmus, with his pliant spirit, flippant and full of levity, remains unmoved. There is more hope of warning the cold than the lukewarm. When churches get into the condition of a half-hearted faith, tolerating the gospel, but having a sweet tooth for error, they cause far more trouble than downright heretics. It's a great deal harder to work for Jesus with a church which is lukewarm than it would be to begin without a church. Give me a dozen earnest spirits and put me down anywhere in London and by God's good help we will soon cause the wilderness and the solitary place to rejoice. But give me the whole lot of you, half-hearted, undecided, and unconcerned, what can I do? You will only be a drag upon a man's zeal and earnestness. 5,000 members of a church all lukewarm will be 5,000 impediments. But a dozen earnest, passionate spirits determined that Christ shall be glorified and souls won will be more than conquerors. In their very weakness and fewness will be capacities for being more largely blessed of God. Better nothing than lukewarmness. Alas, this state of lukewarmness is so fitting with human nature that it is hard to fetch men out from it. Cold makes us shiver, and great heat causes us pain. But a warm bath is comfort itself. Such a temperature suits human nature. The world is always at peace with a lukewarm church, and such a church is always pleased with itself. Not too worldly, no, we have our limits. There are certain amusements which, of course, a Christian must give up, but we will go right up to the line. For why are we to be miserable? We are not to be so greedy as to be called miserly, but we will give as little as we can to the cause. 
We will not be altogether absent from the house of God, but we will go as seldom as we can. We will not altogether forsake the poor people to whom we belong, but we will also go to the world's church so as to get admission into better society and find fashionable friends for our children. How much of this there is abroad? Compromise is the order of the day. Thousands try to follow the word and indulge in the world. They are for God and mammon, Christ and Belial, truth and error, and so are neither hot nor cold. Do I speak somewhat strongly? Not as strongly as my master, for he says I will spew thee out of my mouth. He is nauseated with such conduct. It sickens him. He will not endure it. In an earnest, honest, fervent heart, nausea is created when we fall in with men who dare not give up their profession and yet will not live up to it. Who cannot altogether forsake the work of God, but yet go about it in a lazy, careless manner, trifling with what ought to be done in the best style for so good a Lord and so gracious a Savior. Many a church has fallen into a condition of indifference, and when it does so, it generally becomes full of worldly professors, a refuge for people who want an easy religion which enables them to enjoy the pleasures of sin and the honors of piety at the same time, where things are free and easy, where you're not expected to do much or give much or pray much or to be very religious, where the minister is not so precise as the old school divines, a more liberal people of broad views, free thinking and free acting, where there is a full tolerance for sin and no demand for vital godliness. Such churches applaud cleverness in a preacher. As for his doctrine, that's of small consequence. And for his love to Christ and zeal for souls, very secondary. He's a clever fellow and can speak well, and that will do quite nicely. The style of this thing is all too common, and yet we are expected to hold our tongue, for the people are very respectable. The Lord grant that we may be kept clear of such respectability. We've already said that this condition of indifference is attended with perfect complacency. The people who ought to be mourning are rejoicing, and where they should hang out signals of distress, they're flaunting the banners of triumph. We are rich. We're adding to our numbers, enlarging our schools, and growing on all sides. We have need of nothing. What can a church require that we do not already have in abundance? And yet, their spiritual needs are terrible. This is a sad state for a church to be in. So proud and yet so spiritually poor. A church crying out to God because it feels itself in a backsliding state. A church mourning its deficiency. A church pining and panting to do more for Christ. A church burning with zeal for God and therefore quite discontented with what it has been able to do. This is the church which God will bless. But that which writes itself down as a model for others, 
is very probably grossly mistaken and in a sad plight. This church, which was so rich in its own esteem, was utterly bankrupt in the sight of the Lord. It had no real joy in the Lord. It had mistaken its joy in itself for that. It had no real beauty of holiness in it. It had mistaken its formal worship and fine building and harmonious singing for that. It had no deep understanding of the truth and no wealth of vital godliness. It had mistaken carnal wisdom and outward profession for those precious things. It was poor in secret prayer, which is the strength of any church. It was destitute of communion with Christ, which is the very lifeblood of religion. But it had the outward appearance of these blessings and walked in a vain show. The truth is, contentment regarding worldly goods makes men rich, but contentment with our spiritual condition is a sign of poverty. This church of Laodicea had, a, had fallen into a condition which had chased away its Lord. The text tells us that Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. That is not the position which our church occupies, our Lord occupies in a truly flourishing church. If we are walking aright with him, he's in the midst of the church, dwelling there and revealing himself to his people. His presence makes our worship to be full of spirituality and life. He meets his servants at the table and there spreads them a feast upon his body and his blood. It is he who puts power and energy into our church action and causes the word to sound out from our midst. True saints abide in Jesus and he in them. O oh, brethren, when the Lord is in a church, it is a happy church, a holy church, a mighty church, and a triumphant church. But we may grieve him till he will say, I will go and return to my place until they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. O oh, you that know my Lord and have power with him, entreat him not to go away from us. He can see much about us as a people which grieves his Holy Spirit, much about any one of us to provoke him to anger. Hold him, I pray you, do not let him go, or if he be gone, bring him again. And say, abide with us, for thou art life and joy, and all in all to us as a church. Ichabod is written across our house if thou be gone, and for thy presence is our glory, and thy absence will be our shame. Churches may become like the temple when the glory of the Lord had left the holy place because the image of jealousy was set up and the house was defiled. What a solemn warning is that which is contained in Jeremiah 7, verse 12 through 15. But go ye now unto my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because ye have done all these works, saith the Lord, and I spake unto you, rising up early and speaking, but ye heard not, and I called you, but ye answered not, therefore I will do unto this house, which is called by my name, wherein ye trust, and unto the place which I gave to you and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren." 
even the whole seed of Ephraim. Now I have to speak of the remedies which the Lord employs. I do earnestly pray that what I say may come home to everyone here, especially to every one of the members of this church, for it has come very much home to me and caused great searching of heart in my own soul. I beseech you to judge yourselves that you be not judged. I speak of you and to you in the plainest way. Some of you show plain symptoms of being lukewarm, and God forbid that I flatter you or be unfaithful to you. I am aiming at you. I earnestly want each beloved brother and sister here to take home each affectionate rebuke. And you who come from other churches, whether in America or elsewhere, you want arousing quite as much as we do. Your churches are not better than ours. Some of them are not so good. And I speak to you also, for you need to be stirred up to nobler things. Note then the first remedy. Jesus gives a clear discovery as to the church's true state. He says to it, Thou art lukewarm, thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I rejoice to see people willing to know the truth, but most men do not wish to know it, and this is a bad sign. When a man tells you that he's not looked at his ledger or reviewed his accounts for 12 months, you know about where he is. When a man dares not know the worst about his case, it is certainly a bad one. But he that is right before God is thankful to be told what he is and where he is. Now some of you know the faults of other people. And in watching this church, you have observed weak points in many places. Have you wept over them? Have you prayed over them? If not, you have not watched as you should for the good of your brethren and sisters. And perhaps you have allowed evils to grow which ought to have been rooted up. You have been silent when you should have kindly and earnestly spoken to the offenders or made your own example a warning to them. Do not judge your brother, but judge yourself. If you have any severity, use it on your own conduct and heart. We must pray the Lord to use this remedy and to make us know just where we are. We will never get right as long as we are confident that we are right already. Complacency is the death of repentance. Our Lord's next remedy is gracious counsel. He says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Does that not strike you as being very like the passage in Isaiah? Come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. It is so. And it teaches us that one remedy for lukewarmness is to begin again, just as we began at first. What joy, what peace, what delight, what comfort, what enthusiasm we had when we first knew the Lord. We bought gold of him then for nothing. Let us go and buy again 
at that same price. If religion has not been genuine with us till now, or if we have been adding to it great lumps of shining stuff, which we thought was gold and was not, let us go down to the heavenly mint and buy gold tried in the fire, so that we may be truly rich. Come, let us begin again, each one of us. Inasmuch as we may have thought we were clothed, and yet we were naked, let us hasten to him again, and at his own price, which is no price, procure the robe which he has wrought of his own righteousness, and that goodly raiment of his spirit, which will clothe us with the beauty of the Lord. If, moreover, we have come to be rather dim in the eye, and no longer look up to God and see his face, and have no bright vision of the glory to be revealed, and cannot look on sinners with weeping eyes, as once we did. Let us go to Jesus for the eye salve, just as we went when we were stone blind at first. And the Lord will open our eyes again, and we will behold him in clear vision as in days gone by. The word from Jesus is, Come near to me, I pray you, my brethren. If you have wandered from me, return. If you have been cold to me, I am not cold to you. My heart is the same to you as ever. Come back to me, my brethren. Confess your evil deeds, receive my forgiveness, and henceforth let your hearts burn towards me. For I love you still, and will supply all your needs. That is good counsel. Let us take it. Now comes a third remedy, sharp and cutting, but sent in love, rebukes and chastenings. Christ will have his favored church walk with great care. And... If she will not follow him fully by being shown where she has erred and will not repent when kindly counseled, he then takes himself to some sharper means. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. The word here used for love is a very choice one. It is one which signifies an intense personal affection. Now it's a very solemn thing to be dearly beloved by God. It's a privilege to be coveted. But mark you, the man who is so honored occupies a position of great delicacy. The Lord thy God is a jealous God, and he is most jealous where he shows most love. The Lord lets some men escape scot-free for a while after doing many evil things. But if they had been his own elect, he would have visited them with stripes long before. He's very jealous of those whom he has chosen to lean upon his bosom and to be his familiar friends. Your servant may do many things which could not be thought, which could not even be thought of by your child or your wife. And so is it with many who profess to be servants of God. They live a very lax life and they do not seem to be chastened for it. But if they were the Lord's own peculiarly beloved ones, he would not endure such conduct from them. Now mark this. If the Lord exalts a church and gives it a special blessing, he expects more from it. More care of his honor 
and more zeal for his glory than he does of any other church. And when he does not find it, what will happen? Why? Because of his very love, he will rebuke it with hard sermons, sharp words, and sore smitings of conscience. If these do not arouse it, he will take down the rod and deal out chastenings. Do you know how the Lord chastens churches? Paul says, For this cause some are sickly among you, and many sleep. Bodily sickness is often sent in discipline upon churches, and losses and crosses and troubles are sent among the members. And sometimes leanness in the pulpit, breakings out of heresy and division in the pew, and lack of success in all church work. All these are smitings with the rod. It is very sad, but sometimes that rod does not fall on that part of the church which does the wrong. Sometimes God may take the best in the church and chasten them for the wrong of others. You say, how can that be right? Why? Because they are the kind of people who will be most benefited by it. In their case, the chastening is a blessing and a token of love. Sorrow is often brought upon Christians by the sins of their fellow members, and many an aching heart there is in this world that I know of, of brethren and sisters who love the Lord and want to see souls converted, but they can only sigh and cry because nothing is done. Perhaps they have a minister who does not believe the gospel, and they have fellow members who do not care whether the minister believes it or not. They are all asleep together, except those few zealous souls who besiege the throne of grace day and night. And they are the ones who bear the burden of the lukewarm church. Oh, if the chastening comes here, whoever bears it, may the whole body be the better for it. And may we never rest till the church begins to glow with the sacred fire of God and boil with enthusiastic desire for his glory. Now we have the last remedy. It is the best of all to my mind. I love it best and desire to make it my food when it is not my medicine. The best remedy for backsliding churches is more communion with Christ. Behold, saith he, I stand at the door and knock. I have known this text preached to sinners numbers of times as though Christ knocked at their door and they had to open it and so on. That preacher has never managed to keep to free grace because the text was not meant to be so used. This text belongs to the church of God, not to the unconverted. It is addressed to the Laodicean church. There is Christ outside the church, driven there by her unkindness, but he has not gone far away. He loves his church too much to leave her altogether. He longs to come back, and therefore he waits at the doorpost. He knows that the church will never be restored till he comes back, and he desires to bless her. And so he stands, waiting, knocking, and knocking, again and again. He does not merely knock once, but he stands knocking by earnest sermons, by providences, by impressions upon the conscience, by the quickenings of his Holy Spirit, 
and while he knocks, he speaks. He uses all means to awaken his church. Most condescendingly and graciously does he do this, for having threatened to spew her out of his mouth, he might have said, I will get me gone, I will never come back again to thee. And that would have been natural and just. But how gracious he is, when, having expressed his disgust, he says, Disgusted as I am with your condition, I do not wish to leave you. I've taken my presence from you, but I love you, and therefore I knock at your door and wish to be received into your heart. I will not force myself upon you. I want you voluntarily to open the door to me. Christ's presence in a church is always a very tender thing. He never is there against the will of the church. It cannot be, for he lives in his people's wills and hearts, and worketh in them to will and to do of his own good pleasure. He does not break, bolt, and bar, and come in, as he often does into a sinner's heart, carrying the soul by storm, because the man is dead in sin, and Christ must do it all, or the sinner will perish. But here he is speaking to living men and women, who ought also to be loving men and women. And he says, I wish to me among you, open the door to me. We ought to open the door at once and say, come in, good Lord. We grieve to think we should have ever put thee outside the door at all. And then, see what promises he gives. He says he will come and sup with us. He will give us a rich feast, for he himself is the daintiest and most plenteous of all feasts for perishing souls. He will come and sup with us. That is, we shall be the host and entertain him. But then he adds, and he with me. That is, he will be the host and entertain us. So we will change places. We will be host and guest by turns. We will give him of our best, which really is too poor for him, and yet he will partake of it. Then he shall be host and we will be guest. And oh, how we will feast on what he gives. Christ comes and brings the supper with him. All we do is find the room. The master says to us, where is the guest chamber? And then he makes ready and spreads his royal table. Now, if these be the terms on which we are to have a feast together, we should most willingly fling open the doors of our hearts and say, come in, good Lord. You may be well aware that you have very little to offer. And so when he says to you, children, have you any meat? And you are obliged to say, no, Lord. He will come in unto you none the less readily. For there are the fish. The net is ready to break. It is so full, and here are more upon the coals ready. I warrant you, if we sup with him, we shall be lukewarm no longer. The men who live where Jesus is soon feel their hearts burning. Now, brethren and sisters, what can I say to move you to take this last medicine? I can only say, take it. 
not only because of the good it will do you, but because of the sweetness of it. I have heard some say that they were pledged not to take wine except as a medicine, but then they were very pleased when they were ill. And so if this be the medicine, I will come and sup with him and he with me, we may willingly confess our need of so delicious a remedy. Need I press it on you? May I not rather urge you all as soon as you get home today to see whether you cannot enter into fellowship with Jesus? And may the Spirit of God help you. This is my closing word. There is something for us to do in this matter. We must examine ourselves. We must confess the fault if we have declined in grace. And then we must not talk about setting the church right. We must pray for grace, each one for himself. For the text does not say if the church will open the door, but if any man hear my voice and open the door. It must be done by individuals. The church will only get right by each man getting right. Oh, that we may get back into an earnest zeal for the Lord's love and service. We shall only do so by listening to his rebukes and then falling into his arms, clasping him once again and saying, My Lord and my God. That healed Thomas, did it not? putting his fingers into the print of the nails, putting his hand into the side, that cured him. Poor, unbelieving, staggering Thomas only had to do that, and he became one of the strongest of believers and said, My Lord and my God, you will love your Lord till your soul is burning hot if you will daily commune with him. Come close to him. And once getting close to him, never go away from him again. The Lord bless you, dear brethren. The Lord bless you in this thing. I'll just close in prayer. Lord, cause us to see, to examine ourselves, whether we are lukewarm. May we draw near to you, Lord, and be warmed, be hot in our love for you, and so reflect you in the church accurately and to the world. All to your glory. In Jesus I pray, amen.